Hey guys, welcome back to Ride the Gray. Unless this is your first time listening, in which case, welcome to the show. As you may know, Ride the Gray is all about exploring nuance and the space between. So today, we are diving into dissent. Yes, you heard me right. This is an episode all about disagreement. We're discussing why dissent is absolutely critical, like literally life-saving, how it can be done tastefully, and what to do with that friend that always plays devil's advocate. You know who you are. So if you love to disagree, this is the episode for you. Let's get started. Welcome to Ride the Gray, a podcast about lateral thinking in which we actively seek new ways to learn about complex and dynamic systems. Thanks for listening. Let's dive right in. Do you want to talk about, you know, how we came to this idea of dissent and why we chose it as a topic for today? Sure. Well, um, to tie it back into um, our conversation with Andy, where we went into movies a little bit. um, One of my kids, um, we were, we've been going through as COVID has hit all these movies that I haven't seen in years. But now that he's in his teens, they're new to him. So I'm getting to rewatch these. And we picked World War Z featuring Brad Pitt. Uh, definitely didn't win any awards, but, um, but it was fun. And as I was watching it, there's, there was a scene in which he ends up in Israel. And they're having basically the safest place or one of the safest places to be on the planet because they have built these massive walls. And as he's asking about why, how did you know how to do this? Nobody else saw this coming. Um, referring to, uh, the disease and the zombie like state that's happening everywhere. And there's a guy who says, we have this saying, or we have this rule that we call the 10th man. And if there's 10 people on a council and nine of them agree. It's the job responsibility of the 10th man to disagree, to dissent. And that caught me in the movie. And I remember thinking afterwards, was that just like a literary concept or was that real? So as I started to do research, I found out that it was true. And um, it led me to a book, uh, said why dissent matters. Um, And it's a book by William Kaplan. And the subtitle is, so it's Why Dissent Matters, Because Some People See Things the Rest of Us Miss. Um, And so so read this book, and Kaplan is an attorney up in Canada, um, but he also has written several books, and uh, the books are around some of these ideas of kind of testing normative thought. And so that's kind of how we arrived at it. So do you want me to describe The Tenth Man? A little bit more like how that came about yeah i have two questions one yeah. is brad pitt the 10th man and no. two um what is the background behind 10th man and how did this movie come to integrate that yeah well they took their own liberty of course but um hollywood you know, typical hollywood yeah. yeah yeah brad pitt what else do you need to say but the um the idea of 10th man uh, originated that back in the 1960s, in 1967, Israel had a war um, with Syria and Egypt in which it only lasted six days. So it was called the Six Day War. Um, and it was 
huge success for the Israeli army. They really were able to flex their military muscle and prove that they had this supremacy. And part of what their success was built around this concept. And they built a concept that said the surrounding bordering countries that and nations that are um, likely to try to breach our borders, they act a certain way. And this was called the concept. And uh, that concept held for quite a while. Um, but in 1973, so I guess not that long, six, seven years, um, there was something called the Yom Kippur War, which was during that holiday. They were attacked by Egypt and Syria uh, and Jordan. And they, it basically was like they couldn't see it coming. But when they go back and, and actually tell the story, there are all these accounts that people came to them and said, they're lining up on our borders. They're, they're mobilizing all these tanks. They're doing all these things that don't fit the concept. And because there was so much confidence in this belief that they had about how their neighboring countries responded, they discounted every piece of information and they ended up losing 3000 uh, of their, of their soldiers, of their military. And there was a huge repercussion. And they say that there was even a point where they were concerned they might have they might lose their country um, as a whole. So it could have been just been absolutely uh, demoralizing, but it was enough for them to say, we don't ever want to have this happen again. And so if there is dissent, if there's somebody who's bringing information outside of what fits our paradigm, they're given a special protected place that we cannot just write them off. They have to give, we have to give them full um, time and opportunity to state their case and their evidence. And we need to give it the weight that we should have um, in 1973. So, And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that same story, I mean, Israel went on to kind of think this idea was so important that they institutionalized the idea of this 10th man, right? They, this was somebody that was specifically hired or assigned to poke holes at arguments or find reasons why they should not do what their plan of attack was or, or whatnot. And I think we're going to probably touch on whether or not that's a good thing later, but fascinating topic. If anybody's ever seen um, 12 Angry Men, I kind of think of that idea where, you know, you have 12 jurors or the, the jury sitting in a room and it's the job of the one guy that doesn't agree to convince everybody else in the room why somebody might be innocent or guilty, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'm just thinking one of my favorite examples of dissent, you know, just thinking histo historically is um, Space Shuttle Columbia and Challenger. Both of those were catastrophes from, you know, the, the space missions that they had um, undertaken. But when looking back at the processes that led up to those missions, people had known that there were things wrong, either engineers or technicians or the actual you know, people involved in constructing the, the space shuttles, but didn't say anything or didn't feel like they had the systems in place to bring it to the next level of authority. And it ended in death and or destruction of those space shuttles. But then you look at Apollo 13, conversely, you know, that wasn't a perfect mission by any means. The space shuttle was actually um, 
had some serious issues upon ascent, but they basically didn't let the mission fail because the mission director said to all of his employees who were manning the mission, I don't care what it takes. We are getting that space shuttle home safely. No idea is a bad idea. We will not stop working until we bring that aircraft home. And because even the the lowest level, you know, technician was allowed to bring forward an idea that might have been crazy or stupid, that space craft was um, was saved. So, you know, obviously there are a lot of great historical examples. We don't have to go into all of them, but why is descent necessary? And, you know, like where where else is is this important? Well, you know, we we were talking about differential learning and we were talking about cognitive entrenchment. We were talking about some of these things that you have to um, you have to build build a way to keep your structure from getting too stable. And you know, we are we are great at I think creating. Uh, model structures and networks to explain the inter- interrelationship between a bunch of pieces and parts, and then having a way that we can reliably uh, view how those things work together and see the connections between them. But, you know, as we really study um, psychology and understand neuroscience, a lot of times we see what we want to see. And, you know, we we completely miss things that we don't want to see. We we're, We've talked about biases. We've talked just about um, the phenomenons of of groupthink, and so there, there's nothing wrong with creating these systems. There's nothing wrong with 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 having a way, uh, a, mer- a, a paradigm or a model that we see the complex world around us or complicated world. But I think what's what's troublesome is if we don't have a a, a way to protect ourselves against that being outdated or out of context. And um, I think that's what, if you talk about the, the space shuttle, you know, the, the reason that wasn't successful was totally different than the reason the, the nation of Israel was um, caught off guard. You know, there's some similarities, but there's a lot of differences. And then there's, there's some things that are like, like Andy referred to earlier about medicine that, this this way of doing surgery now is no longer the best way of doing it. So, you know, the the, the reasons are, are vast on why I think dissent is important. But ultimately, if you want to have the best model for the moment, it's going to have to be, it's going to need information that maybe doesn't fit. Yeah. And I would say, you know, to kind of summarize maybe some of the reasons why all of these different um, domains benefit from dissent, right? Like, okay, so sometimes dissent can be important because you need an injection of new ideas, creativity, solutions, right? Sometimes dissent can be important or necessary because we've done things the same way for a long time and we might miss something. So it's important to see things that other people might miss. Sometimes it's just to start a conversation. You don't necessarily need to do anything about it, but it's to start a conversation or a movement. And then, you know, I think this is also interesting is sometimes it's to set a precedent for the future. 
is just to have the ability to dissent will allow future generations, future conversations to not allow us to get cognitively entrenched, for example, right, or too deep, and that we can't see the forest through the trees. So, you know, I think that's a, you know, just generally a good place to start in terms of why dissent is important. Before you move from that idea, because I really, really like that idea about um, how giving it place sometimes, um, it doesn't always require action in the moment necessarily, but that the, it keeps the door open is what I was hearing you say. But also that even if dissent is brought and then it's not followed, like that information does not become our next action step. We talked about destabilizing so that the signal can actually get stronger is if you have dissent and then you can work through it and you still end up with your same concept, but now it's even more robust and stronger because you've tested it, right? Do you think? Oh, 100%. Dissent is obviously necessary. It's obviously important, but it can be really, really freaking hard. And it's really hard to do it right. So what are some characteristics of good dissent and what makes it so difficult? Um, well, I mean, let's start with the, the case of um, the Yom Kippur War back in 73. You said out of that, they actually institutionalized uh, dissent, that it had to be, if you're the 10th person, you don't have a choice. You have to uh, dissent, whether you agree with that or whether you're just doing it to to voice dissent. So they actually got rid of that after a while because when it became institutionalized, it actually didn't work very well. If it was just that your role is to do this, not I genuinely am supporting this role because I believe in it, but more it's just up to me to to take that step. So the the key here, one of the keys, is that it, it has to come from a place of authenticity. It has to come from a place of conviction that you have, you have looked through this, thought, some, thought independently and strategically about it, and that you have support for, for why, right? What, yeah, what I, mean, I, I was going to say, I think we all have that friend or that person that, gosh, they just always seem to play devil's advocate. And sometimes it's just like, dude, could you just let me think this way, right? Or could you just like be in agreement with me for once? And I think that's a very different conversation when that person is speaking from a place of authenticity and they're just trying to be real instead of just trying to do it to prove a point or it doesn't serve a purpose, right? So when something is truly authentic and done and dissent is engaged upon because truly a person believes that their conscious leaves them no other choice. How much stronger is that message? Is that dissent? Um, and maybe you can talk to me about how that relates to the idea of needing two parties to truly dissent. Can you just have one person who's a really authentic dissenter or do you need somebody on the receiving end? Well, uh, you have to be open. Like if, if you're the one who has the original concept or decision and then it's being tested by somebody who's dissenting, if I have no openness, 
then their descent is not going to, it's just going to bounce off and and have no impact. But if, if I'm willing to listen, I'm not necessarily saying by listening, I'm agreeing, but just, I'm willing to listen. Then there's the opportunity for um, what we'd say is just thoughtful discourse or discussion and maybe even thoughtful disagreement. And so I think that's where maybe it's not an all or nothing binary zero sum, but it becomes, okay, I can see that part of it that I will, I will integrate that. Cause I, but the whole thing, it's not, we're going to trade this for that. We're going to actually blend the two somehow in the best fit. Um, is that, is that what you were thinking? Yeah, I was thinking like, okay, so I could be the most authentic dissenter of all time. Like I am truly convicted by this idea. I have some great supporting evidence, even though it goes against what the general public believes. But if the general public isn't ready to hear it, or they are just so closed down to any sort of alternative opinion, yeah, yeah the dissent falls short, it falls flat. And so how important is having that two-sided communication? Um, and what does it take to be somebody that allows dissent to occur as like maybe a personality trait? Yeah, yeah. Well, we talked about this with differential learning that error is not a bad term. So dissent, I would throw into the same category, at least the same, uh, you know, make an analogy that if you see dissent as as a negative thing, then that's a problem. And and that's that was the space shuttle situation, right? Dissent was only going to slow us down. It we weren't going to, you know, we're already pressed for time to make this launch date. So, you know, we don't want to take the time to do that. And secondly is, you know, that maybe who, maybe who was listening or who was bringing it, there was some disconnect there. Cause I think also, if you don't have credibility as a dissenter, you know, if you're not somebody who thinks independently, does their work, has a high level of, of competency, you know, it's going to be really hard to listen to that person. Uh, you know. If you have any questions about what that looks like, just open a Twitter, Twitter feed. <laughs> or, you know, try to listen to your little brother, or little sister, bring uh-huh. an opposing view. And you're like, well, what do you know about life, man? Mm-hmm. You have not been through it. But, you know, I was thinking about it. So William Kaplan talks about in his book, Why Descent Matters, the one that you brought up earlier. You know, the common thread, the common characteristic trait between a lot of good dissenters that he could come up with was, you know, character. And I think that goes along with being authentic, right? So if you have true character and maybe you have really done your research and you're coming from an authentic place, that dissent carries a lot more weight, right? But I don't know how what you think about this, but it takes you checking your ego to the ultimate degree to be a great dissenter because uh, you know, why, like, why, why is it so hard to be a dissenter, even if you've got great character and you're authentic? Yeah. Well, you know, we were talking before this about, um, there's a guy named Ray Dalio who people in the business world and in the investment world are very familiar with his work. He's a very, very successful hedge fund guy. And he's taken upon himself to, to write a book and, and 
try to help share some of the principles that drove his success, which have a lot to do with the idea that you got to check your ego and you're always looking into the future about what could happen. You're trying to see things that other people are missing, right? So that kind of sounds like what we're talking about. And the concept is an idea meritocracy, which just simply means that what should win out each time should be whoever has the best idea or not whoever has the best idea, but the best idea. And how difficult that is when people have positions that they're trying to protect, protect from an ego or that they're fearful of losing their spot in the hierarchy. If it, if it really matters who, who says it, then that disrupts the whole concept. And it's very, very difficult. I, I don't know who does it well, to be honest, but I think it's something that, to aspire to, don't you think? Yeah, what I just heard you say, and I, I think this is what makes this really tricky, is you have to be willing to tolerate the fact that this could either ruin your reputation, you're opening yourself up to attack, you might lose a job, you might lose money. But if you truly do have that character, maybe those things don't don't matter to you. You know, and I and I think about especially today. You know, the day that we're recording this actually um, is the day that all those um, WNBA, NBA, MLS, like so many um, professional sporting events have been postponed or canceled because players are boycotting it. And it's, you know, four years, the date of Colin Kaepernick Mm -hmm. first kneeling for the national anthem. And I think about Colin Kaepernick is somebody who is a huge dissenter, right? He was the first to go against this idea, not the first to go against, but to, in a sporting world, take a knee for a national anthem mm-hmm. in response to police brutality against, you know, a marginalized population of people. And he took an incredible amount of attack and lost his job. He still has not been invited back to an NFL team. And it's four years later and what's really changed. You know, I think that conversation is now much more mainstream. I think that we're talking about it now. I think Colin Kaepernick would say that his dissent and his dissenting opinion has sparked conversation at the very least, which is maybe what his original goal was. But I would argue that it takes a really uncommon person to have a reputation that people will listen to and trust, but also be willing to risk it all. Yeah. It, it, I mean, character, at least there are certain characteristics because I I don't really know that much about Colin Kaepernick and, you know, I'm not trying to put him on the stand and say every decision he's ever made shows great moral fiber. What we're talking about when we say character is a strength of character to stick to a conviction. So regardless of what other decisions and things would be in the background, this particular issue has so much conviction that you're right. He was able, he was willing to to risk it all. And other people responded to that. And it has taken time to be where it is now. Unfortunately, some of those reasons are are other people dying. But um, if he didn't have that character, if he had kind of given in and said, actually, I really would rather play in the NFL. So, you know, 
it was a good run, but let's play football. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, so back to your original comment of whether or not the two sides of the road, if you're in an environment that isn't open, it's going to cost more. It's going to require more character. It's going to be less common, but it might be more necessary. I like the quote from William Kaplan, where he says in his book, dissent is noisy, messy, inconvenient, costly, often misplaced, sometimes laughable, usually badly timed, and almost always time-consuming. Many dissenters are self-interested and misanthropic. Some of them are just crazy. Talk to me about this quote. <laughs> well, you know, I was, I was really interested. I'll, I'll share another thought that, that goes with this, because the first part of that quote was, it's costly. I mean, it's messy, it's costly. I think part of the reason that some people are really, I think what people want who are key decision makers, I don't think that they are completely against dissent. I think that because dissent has not been practiced to the point where it in and of itself is really uh, vetted or is, is proven to be effective often enough that it's, that they can really take it seriously. I think there's so much weeding out of the crazies or the ineffective or the person who doesn't have credibility or, you know, the bad ideas that it's just easier to put it, lump it all together and say, don't bring anything that doesn't agree. So it, but in the sense that it is, so like, let's say there's a model where it is expected like the 10th man or, you know, which is an institutional thing, or we've, created an environment where this is really, really valued. An example of that is this red team concept. So you said earlier, devil's advocate. Um, we know when we practice, we use a scout team or a red te red squad, we call it. You guys, because you're red, might be, what color is your scout team? Uh, we're the black team. Okay. So, but everybody has this this team that's supposed to go against the the A squad and push them by making them have to uh, work on things that are, that are going to serve them well in the next competition. Here's, here's a thought. It, it says back to the book, red, red teams are independent organizations that explore alternatives. So there are some, some organizations that aren't in sport that try to employ a reds team, a red team. So uh, special ops do this, right. Um, and they try to create, a lot of chaos and things that you have to solve. But red teams are uh, independent organizations that explore alternatives, usually in the case of a planned military or intelligence operation. They take a proposed plan of action, so whatever you thought you wanted to do, and then they deconstruct it to the granular level and then put it back together and do it all over again, a second and a third time, always with a completely different perspective and approach. So this seems like, man, this would be incredible. This would be awesome. But how time-consuming and energy cost, uh, like costly, is the idea of a red team? Yeah, and I think this this kind of goes into when when does dissent go too far? When do we not want to engage in dissent? 
And this is kind of maybe speaking to our counterpoints, right? You know, we always try to have a mm-hmm. counterpoint, which gets kind of tricky here because it's like, it goes back to inception, right? Like, are we providing counterpoints on descent? What does that make descent? <laughs> you know, like my brain is like doing <laughs> mental aerobics. Um, well, just just the costly nature that it you can't you can't do this on every model and every decision that you have. I mean, it just would take so much time and energy, and it would be so inefficient, right? And in fact, in the in the book, it says a red team works only if it's supported at the very top, which goes back to the idea that you have to have the two sides of the road, right? So if, if the people at the top of the company or the top of the team, the top of the structure say, we want this and we're behind this, that has, that's when it'll work. Then the second part is it has to be used sparingly. Like if you do it all the time, it loses its impact and probably slows you down so much. Absolutely. I mean, this is the entire case of you know, pick your battles, right? Is we can't use dissent every time we go to make a decision that's going to be paralysis by analysis, or that's going to make us a a less uh, efficient team. You know, (laughs) my mentor, um, Andrea Hootie is famous for saying done is better than perfect. And I can see that a case for that too. You know, a lot of times you make a decision and then you execute it and then you go back and maybe you refine it for later. If you are stuck in the, you know, pre phase for too long, trying to, argue the dissenting opinion and should this, you know, be done again, it does. Um, it does become, I think, messy and, and not, it's not a lean organization or not a sleek uh, aerodynamic decision-making organization. Right. But I think there's also a point to be made, which is at what point do you feel like you have a dissent or a dissenting opinion, but it would be better off kept to yourself, not because you don't want to slow something down, but because that decision might be beneficial for some populations or in some situations, and your dissenting opinion is very personal to your situation, but maybe it's worth letting that other organization fail or try that thing. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I think that the idea that it's going to work better for some people or in certain situations, I mean, it's so consistent with noise and what we've been talking about in the motor learning space. I think um, there may be times to keep it to yourself and either bring it up in a smaller group environment or one-on-one or just saving it for later, especially if it's not something that is going to have a a major impact or an immediate impact. so that's what that's, I think where, you know, I'm really big in, and I think you are too in self-determination theory being really key for learning, but also when we get to this place of competency and autonomy and descent that you, you have to be okay standing alone. You have to be okay. You have to have enough credibility through the competency that you have. And then this idea of relatedness and connectedness, I think maybe that's where it comes in is, is this going to be good for everyone or not? Um, I I could see that. Speaking of being good for everybody or not, how do you tell the difference between dissent and people that are just crazy or nuts and just way far out there? Like, at what point do you stop listening to those dissenters? 
if mm. ever, or or should you? Like here, like uh, I'm gonna give you an example. I'm gonna give you an example. Maybe you respond to this. So Travis, you strongly believe in the idea of, and I'm making this up for our listeners. I have no idea how Travis feels about this. Um, you strongly believe in the idea of climate change. And here I am, and I'm dissenting against that. Now, mom and dad, I don't actually dissent against this idea if you're listening. Um, but I would be way far out there in saying that I don't think that climate change exists. And I'm in an argument providing that dissent to Travis. Travis, at what point do you listen to what I'm saying and you try to re- ra- rationalize that and reason with me? And at what point do you it, do I take it too far? I don't know. I don't know that there's a line. I mean, I think, I think if you are not willing to listen, so that's what's so hard about like political parties. If you say you align with this party and I hear that I'm, I'm going to assume everything that that party has said is what you agree with, but that may not be true. Right. And so it's tough when you say, I don't think climate change is real. Because if you're just parroting what everybody else has said, then that's really easy to dismiss you because you haven't actually thought through it and researched it. But if you've researched it, you know, if you have considered the exact opposite to be true and researched it and you've landed at this, then we're going to have a lot to talk about. And I think what's interesting is a lot of times when you end up having those conversations, what do we end up saying? I think we both mean the same thing. We're just using different language. A lot of times, right? Like how much is dissent miscommunication versus actual difference in ideology? That's a great question. I, I would I would think that a lot of it would be miscommunication because people often aren't both coming from a place of having researched and trying to seek to understand the other party, right? We're so entrenched in our own beliefs because they're so intricately um, tied up to our identity that we have a really hard time stepping out of that to open ourselves up like we've talked about. So I would say in this situation, as long as the other party has done their research, don't be scared of an idea just because it's different than yours, no matter how radical, right? Like we're talking about something like the earth is flat, right? If that person has done their research and they have really good convincing arguments, I would still think that they provide value in terms of even the practice of listening and engaging and having discourse with somebody that has opposing opinions as you do. Going back to your idea of there's no line. I think that's one, the gray that we're searching for. But I would also push back and say that there is a line when what you're saying serves no purpose other than to hurt somebody or you have truly not done your research and you're just saying something simply to stir the pot. Now, if you're being funny, that's different. But if you truly want to engage in dissent and do it the right way, that's not it. Yeah, I mean, some people do have a contrarian personality or you have people who just like drama and just want to 
yeah, they, they want to see, they want to cause disruption and they want to see sparks fly and they, yeah. Travis, I just, I, you know, I haven't known you this super long, but I feel like you really love drama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. You know me. <laughs> Sips tea. Sips yeah. his coffee. You can't see on Zoom, but he just sipped a big old <laughs> sip of Starbucks coffee. Okay. So, Trav, yeah. let's, um, what do you think? Should we take it to a conclusion, wrap up, final thoughts? Yeah, sure. What, what, you uh, go yeah, what? you can go first. How about that? Me. Great. Thanks. Okay. Well, I, you know, I think the biggest takeaway for me is that we can glorify dissent. We can say it's super important and it's really great. And that's the wrong thing to do because there is, if, if something is built well, that the way you think about things is built well, then you're, you're, you shouldn't just break it apart. The old saying of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, there's just, there's not a need to just keep tweaking and because I have nothing better to do, but there, it, there does become, and I, I'm totally probably part of this is when you start, when things start rolling and you are having success, a lot of times you think, well, let's just keep doing what we do and don't, don't try to change things. Like I, I know, uh, you know, if, if a guy is shooting at a high percentage, but his technique is terrible, if you're going to do it, you certainly don't want to do it during the season. <laughs> you know, you don't want to just create unnecessary disruption. Like I, I'm thinking of an example where, uh, you know, when we started to get into vision, how important is vision in, in playing basketball? And then, you know, we have an ophthalmologist come in and look at our players and evaluate them and screen them and then say, well, I think this guy would benefit from, uh, you know, corrective lenses or uh, contact lenses. And then the player's like, well, I don't know. This is really uncomfortable. This is really disruptive. And yeah, I can see better, but I don't know how to integrate that with shooting. And you're like, hey, if it's anywhere near season, let's do this when it's over. Right. So I, I, I know that's kind of a little bit of a sidetrack, but I think dissent can be the same way that it's like, pick your spots, pick your battles, like you were saying, but if you're going to do it, have character, have conviction, have some nuts, have like, you know, this autonomy that says, I, I have confidence in what I believe and I have, uh, I have a lot of evidence to support it. And I have, um, and I'm willing, and it's not about me, you know, it's, it's a, it's about the group getting better or the idea getting better. And again, like we were talking about earlier that the, the quality of using differential learning depends a lot on a coach who's able to do that, who really is comfortable doing that and can do it well. Descent is almost like the same thing. Like you have to, there's probably an art to descent. There's probably character, there's the right person and there's the right situation. And it's like, I don't think it's just as simple as, well, I disagree, <laughs> you know, I don't know. What about you? Yeah, it, it's much, it's much deeper than that. Right. I, I would, I would echo your same thoughts. I would add that I think it's important for organizations to purposely and proactively build in space for dissent to occur, not necessarily saying this always needs to be used. Like it's not institutionalized, but Leave some room for that authenticity, that thought, that creativity, throwing in some dissent once in a while. 
stir in the pot, maybe. Um, then you have some true learning, right? Well, there you have it. Is dissent helpful? Absolutely. Sometimes. Should it be institutionalized? It's hard to say. When does it go too far? We'll let you make that decision. But seriously, we want to encourage productive dissent. So if there's something you don't agree with that we talk about, we want to hear from you. Or if there's something that really resonated with you, let us know at ridethegray at gmail.com. Again, gray with an E. Okay, deep breath. If you've made it this far, I'll give you a heads up that our next episode is a must listen. We welcome another amazing guest, someone who works with and around Ascent every day as an employee on the misinformation team at Facebook. Till next time, find a way to ride the gray.